One of the pleasures of hosting a podcast is that I get to talk to the authors of some of my favorite books. And with Nick on vacation, I took the opportunity to invite Oded Galore onto the podcast. He's a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of the recently published The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality. Uh, we've got a link to the book in the show notes, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Oded as much as I did. My name is Oded Galol. I'm a professor of economics at Brown University, but in fact, I'm an interdisciplinary researcher, a specialist in the fields of economic growth, macro history, cultural evolution, and discrete dynamical systems. In the past few decades, I was fortunate enough to be engaged in a fascinating research about the roots of wealth and inequality. And this led to the publication of my recent books, The Journey of Humanity, The Origin of Wealth and Inequality. I want to start with the title of the book. You call it The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality. And that is an imposing title that covers a lot of ground. Why did you feel it was so important to address all of human history going back to our evolution in order to get at the origins of wealth and inequality? So over the past few decades, I was engaged in research that uh, established unambiguously that a significant portion of the inequality across the globe today can be traced to forces that operated in the distant past, forces that operated hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and even tens of thousands of years ago. And as a result of it, in order to address uh, the issue of global inequality today, and in order to design perhaps policies that can mitigate this inequality, I felt compelled to trace the evolution of humanity since the emergence of Homo sapiens in Africa nearly 300,000 years ago, and to try to trace these roots of global inequality as we see it today. And to be clear, you know, you go back, well, we'll define some terms here. Uh, you go back to the Paleolithic era, that's before the agricultural revolution. Indeed. Uh, and, and you find that patterns established uh, when populations uh, went through the agricultural revolution actually influenced uh, wealth accumulation, prosperity for millennia to come. Indeed. So, in fact, what I try to argue is that forces that operated uh, uh, during the agricultural revolution and uh, perhaps even earlier are still operating in today's world in the sense that uh, the agricultural revolution and uh, the pressure that was created at the time on the human population generated a process of cultural evolution that selected a certain type of traits that were conducive for development in some parts of the world and perhaps less conducive for development in other parts of the world. And they contributed to the inequality as we see today. 
but perhaps even more surprisingly, events that occurred even before the onset of the Neolithic Revolution, events that are associated with the exodus of anatomically modern human from Africa nearly 60 to 90,000 years ago, affected the distribution of diversity across the globe and consequently economic prosperity as we see today. So part of the argument that I raise in this book is that if we would like to understand inequality today, if we would like to understand the roots of global inequality today, namely why some countries are rich and others are poor, and why is it the case in, that over the past 200 years, inequality was magnified tremendously uh, in the world economy. And we have to focus on on elements that occurred, as I said, in the distant past. And part of what the book does is trying to peel different layers of influence that affect inequality today, starting with the role of colonialism, moving into the impact of uh, institutions, and ultimately moving even deeper into the roots uh, or the cultural roots of inequality today, the geographical shadow, on inequality today and back all the way to Africa where we are all originated from and the impact of the exodus of humans from Africa on the distribution of diversity across the globe. Let's start with diversity. Talk about the distribution of diversity and why that's important. So it turns out that during the migration of modern human from Africa 60 to 90,000 years ago, populations that departed from Africa carried with them only a subset of the diversity that existed in the, uh, in the original African population. And this is simply based on the fact that uh, the original population was limited in size and the departing populations were limited in size. And since this is sampling from a limited distribution, the departing population was not a representative sample of the original population that existed in Africa. And since migration was sequential, the further humans moved from Africa, the lower was the degree of diversity of these populations. So this migration process affected the distribution of diversity across the planet. Naturally, humans moved since then, and in the post-1500 period, we see great migration, for instance, into the Americas. And consequently, one has to account for these uh, migratory patterns. But broadly speaking, the distribution of the distribution of diversity across the globe was affected during this migratory pattern. Now, why is it so important? It is so important because diversity has conflicting effects on productivity. On the one hand, diversity is associated with cross-fertilization of ideas, complementarity of traits, and consequently greater innovations and productivity. But on the other hand, diversity has an adverse effect on social cohesiveness. It is associated with mistrust. It is associated with disagreement about the desirable public goods. And consequently, it is a source of conflict. And since diversity has conflicting effects on overall prosperity, it implies that there is or there was historically an intermediate level of diversity that was conducive for productivity namely a sweet spot level of diversity that balance between the 
beneficial effects on innovations and the adverse effect on social cohesiveness. But now, as the world became more and more demanding technologically, as so we move into an era in which technological progress is much more rapid than before, cultural fluidity became very important in the ability of society to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment. And consequently, in the course of human history, what empirical research is showing us is that there is a gradual increase in the sweet spot level of diversity, namely societies that are more diverse are getting the upper hand in the context of, uh, of, uh, of prosperity. If you think about the world, say around the year 1500, the level of diversity that was conducive for productivity was somewhere in Southeast Asia. Societies such as China, Japan and Korea at a level of diversity that balanced well between social cohesiveness and innovativeness. These societies were relatively homogeneous, were relatively cohesive, and consequently the benefits of, the, of homogeneity in terms of cohesiveness balanced well the, uh, the potential adverse effect on innovativeness. But as we moved into the modern world, and as the, as the technological progress started to accelerate, in fact, we see the rise of Europe rather than the rise of China. Namely, it is the cultural fluidity that existed in Europe that ultimately permitted the European population to take off earlier and to have the upper hand in terms of economic prosperity. If we think about the world today, or if we think about the world that we will see in the, in the coming uh, few decades, as technological progress becomes more and more rapid, it will be the case that societies that are more diverse will have the upper hand in the sense that in the context of the trade-off between the beneficial effects of diversity and the potential adverse effect, societies that are more diverse will be closer to the sweet spot level of diversity. That, that I found that really fascinating, that you actually see over time that sweet spot rising as our economy and our society becomes more technologically advanced and thus more complex because you need that increased complexity to maintain that level of technological development, the level of diversity that maximizes this rises. But there's a challenge with that, isn't there? And we see this in the United States, which is has one of the most diverse populations in the world, if not the most, we're struggling with social cohesion right now. Indeed. So as I said, I mean, there is a trade-off that is associated with diversity, and this is precisely the trade-off that you uh, underline. Um, diverse societies tend to be less cohesive socially, and it is a source of uh, tension in different dimensions, source of conflicts, and as a, a result of it, reduction in productivity. But at the same time, as you said, diversity is a source of innovativeness. So two elements are, are important in this dimension. We have to recall that, as I said, technological progress becomes faster and faster. And as a result of it, cultural fluidity becomes much more important. On the other hand, we realize precisely the cost of diversity in the context of social cohesiveness and our education system is progressively more geared 
towards generating this social cohesiveness. Namely, we are educating our children to be more tolerant. We are educating our children to respect the difference between ethnic groups, cultural groups, and otherwise. And consequently, gradually, we are mitigating the cost of diversity. This is not an instantaneous process, but it is a process that is undergoing that suggests that over time, this sweet spot level of diversity will increase over time. And in this respect, the journey of humanity, the book that I, read, that I wrote, is in fact celebrating diversity. It suggests that in fact, there are very good economic reasons why diversity could be beneficial for societies in a rapidly changing technological environment. Right. And, and so this, uh, this instinct by the uh, far right in the United States and in Europe to um, uh, their reaction to diversity, that would have negative economic effects if they were to uh, win out. Indeed. So, th so the argument is a little more complex in the sense that it, that there is, I mean, empirical research is showing us unambiguously that uh, the societies that are progressively more diverse have the upper hand in the context of, uh, of productivity and prosperity. Now, the issue of immigration is a little more tricky in the sense that if, uh, if say, societies in Europe are uh, feeling reluctant to absorb large number of immigrants, I think this is based on their planning horizon in the sense that naturally when immigrants are arriving, it takes time for immigrants to be assimilated into the population. And consequently, the benefits may come with uh, some delay relative to the, the immediate costs on social non-cohesiveness. So part of this uh, rhetoric that we hear in the context of politics in the US and perhaps politics in Europe is a little more complex and it's in some sense outside of the, the direct empirical evidence that I have, which is that if you look at the level of diversity that we see across the globe today, then it appears that societies that are more diverse will have the upper hand. Now, if you want to prepare yourself for the next 20 or 30 years, if politicians would have a longer horizon, they would realize that in fact, uh, restricting diversity, restricting uh, immigration is perhaps not, uh, not the proper strategy. But given the planning horizon of politicians, which is typically the political cycle of uh, four years or eight years, then it is not surprising that politicians are focusing on the immediate uh, short-run effect rather than the uh, prosperity that uh, perhaps will can be generated uh, decades down the road. Right. Though, though of course, and, and maybe we'll get to this a little later in the conversation when we talk about fertility rates, short term, you have to worry about stagnant or declining uh, population if you're looking at the short term interests of your economy. Indeed. So uh, let's get to the heart of the book. You, you ground this in uh, what you call unified growth theory. I want to get into that and uh, a little bit of how this diverges from the uh, more orthodox approach to this subject. But uh, first, uh, first principles, throughout the book, what do you mean when you use the word growth? 
Right, so I'm referring to unified growth theory, and in this respect, when I'm referring to the, to the notion of growth, I'm referring to the progression of humanities uh, over, uh, over uh, the entire span of human existence. So I'm referring to the evolution of societies since the emergence of Homo sapiens in Africa nearly 300,000 years ago. And uh, and naturally, growth is not necessarily measured in uh, in change in economic prosperity. So, from my viewpoint, I mean, if you think about uh, say the ninety nine point nine percent of human existence, what we observe is that we see some growth in technology, we see some evolution of technology, but this evolution in te technological evolution is not converted into uh, economic prosperity of the average individual in society over 99.9% of human existence. We start to see economic growth and a dramatic metamorphosis in the standard of living only in the past 200 years. So again, I will lose the, the word growth very broadly to imply progression in different dimensions, some of it progression in technology, some of it progression in the standard of living. Right. So we're we're not talking about growth uh, in the uh you know, traditional economic sense of GDP. Well we can, we can, but this is just one dimension. So if we think right. about the origins of economic growth, which is basically the origin of uh, the growth in income per capita, then we can see it only in the context of, uh, of the past 200 years. So much of the premise that is advanced in my book, The Journey of Humanity, is that over most of human existence, societies are in a state of stagnation in terms of economic prosperity, although not in the state of stagnation in terms of the progression of technology or the progression of population. Right. So that so this is a, a major theme in the book that um, uh, technology has gradually advanced over the course of human history, um, but uh, human living standards did not until very recently. Indeed. Indeed. Right. It, it, it explain explain why. Right. So. So when we think about the evolution of human societies, as I said, since the emergence of Homo sapiens nearly 300,000 years ago, this evolution is governed by three wheels of change. The first one is technological progress. The second one is the size of the human population. And the third one is the adaptation of the human population. Now, over most of human existence, when technology advanced, research naturally expanded, but these resources permitted individuals and family to have more surviving children, in fact, to give birth to many more of them, and consequently, the surplus that was generated by technological progress was ultimately divided over a larger number of people till the level of economic prosperity or the standard of living reverted back to the subsistence level to the previous equilibrium position. So over most of human existence, the world is in some sort of a Malthusian epoch in the sense that there is a Malthusian mechanism that is operating behind the scene. When technology is advancing, population is advancing in a proportionate way. And consequently, there is no change 
in the material well-being of the population. And consequently, over this time period, societies that are more advanced technologically have more people, but not richer people. Very differently than what we see today, technological advancement is not generating economic prosperity in the long run. Generate more people, but equally prosperous people. And as I said, this is based on the simple notion that when resources are expanding, many more children can survive because they're nourished better than before. Many more children can, uh, can be born because again, mothers are nourished more than before and they're more productive than otherwise. And consequently, the surplus that is being generated by technological progress is divided over larger and larger number of people. And this is something that is occurring over most of human existence. So what we see is basically an interaction between technology and different dimensions of the population. So think about the world 300,000 years ago. We have a certain population in Africa, a modest size, and naturally, these people are equipped with the human brain. Namely, they are equipped with an important element that permits them to innovate. So when we think about innovations 300,000 years ago and the pace of innovations during this time period, it is not as rapid as it is today, but nevertheless, innovations are taking place. So stone, tool is, uh, stone tools are being generated and one stone tool is replacing another. And the advancement of a stone tool is permitting more resources and these more resources permit larger population to be supported. So over the course of this period, and this is nearly 300,000 year period, the world is moving from stone tool technologies 300,000 years ago to steam engine technologies 250 years ago. And the world is moving from a population size of about two and a half million people in the eve of the agricultural revolution 12,000 years ago to one, about one billion people in the midst of industrialization, 400 fold increase. So despite the fact that we see stagnation in living standards, we see great dynamism in the context of technology, great dynamism in the context of the size of the population, and great dynamism in the context of the adaptation of the human population. And these wheels of change are operating relentlessly in the course of human history. We start with few people that contribute to technological progress, that in turn contribute to larger, larger population and more adaptable population, more technological progress. And this occurs over a 300,000 year period. But technological progress nevertheless is relatively small and modest over most of the course of human history. And as a result of it, families do not need to invest in the education of their children so as to allow them to cope with this changing technological environment. But at a certain point in the eve of industrialization, the rate of technological progress becomes very rapid. And in order to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment, in order to cope or to navigate this stormy technological environment, parents must start to invest 
in the education of their children so as to equip them with the tools that will allow them to cope with the change. But naturally, parents have very limited resources. They have to economize on elements of their budget so as to support the education of their kids. They cannot economize on their own consumption because they live with a level of consumption that is very close to their subsistence. And as a result of it, they must economize on the number of children. Namely, in order to support the education of their children, they bear fewer children. And consequently, fertility starts to decline and the growth process is freed from the counterbalancing effect of population. So as I said, over 300,000 year period, when technology advanced, population increased proportionately. But then suddenly, in the course of industrialization, we see this tremendous change. Namely, families start to invest in the education of their children. And as a result of it, technological progress is no longer counterbalanced by population growth. And this is a demographic transition. The decline in fertility is permitting the world to sail into the modern growth regime. And the world as a whole is experiencing a 14-fold increase in income per capita in a period of about 200 years. Right. And, and you talk about this, you talk about the demographic transition as uh, a phase transition, which is actually something which is very common throughout the natural world. You use the example of boiling water. You heat it up to a point and then suddenly it starts to, to, to boil. And I love this insight that essentially t- technology is advancing for 300,000 years. And then we get to this point where education is important. You, you need to educate your children And that's the phase transition that kicks off the demographic transition. I guess for the purpose of, for our audience, if you could just define the demographic transition for us. Right. So two elements are important. So you mentioned phase transition and the demographic transition. So let me focus for a moment uh, initially on the phase transition. So indeed, when we think about a phase transition in nature, say the transition from liquid to gas, We know that as we heat water, once the water reaches the critical temperature, we see this phase transition, the transition from liquid to gas. And what I argue in the context of unified growth theory, using very similar tools, very similar mathematical tools that are based on bifurcation theory, is that over the course of human history, we see this interaction between population and technology that ultimately brings about such a rapid rate of technological progress that generate demand for human capital. And at a certain point, only once a tipping point is reached in terms of the rate of technological progress, parents start to invest in the the education of their kids. This happens in the 19th century in England, massive investment in education. But as I said, forces parents to economize on the size of their their family. And consequently, uh, this fertility decline is freeing the growth process from the counterbalancing effect of population. So when we refer to the demographic transition, we refer to this time period in which we see 
initially a decline in mortality and then a decline in fertility that is a byproduct of this process of very gradual and increase in investment in education that is brought about by the acceleration in technological progress beyond a tipping point. So the demographic transition, as I said, is a process that frees the growth process from the counterbalancing effect of population and consequently permits the world to move into the sustained growth regime. And one more point that is very important. But when you think about the process of phase transition in nature, namely when you think about the transition from water to gas, if you observe this process, you will note that not all water molecules evaporate at the same speed. Some evaporate earlier than others. The same was true in the world economy. When the takeoff is taking place, when people start to invest in education and ultimately the demographic transition is set in motion and a huge takeoff is occurring in the context of economic prosperity, this process occurs in some regions of the world earlier than in other regions of the world. And this implies that there is enormous divergence that is taking place across the globe. Namely, it is the transition from stagnation to growth that is behind much of the inequality that we see across the globe. If you look at the world in the year 1800, only 200 years ago, the ratio between the richest regions of the world and the poorest regions of the world is about three to one. Inequality in the world economy is very modest. But then in the context of the subsequent 200 years, we see this enormous divergence. The ratio between the richest regions of the world and the poorest one is about 15 to one, 20 to one, and even 100 to one, depending on how you define regions of the world. So it is therefore, and you asked me initially, why do I focus about on the evolution of societies throughout human history? The reason that we had to focus on it is that much of the inequality that we see across the globe today was originated due to this differential timing of transition across the globe. And this is not an accident either. Namely, the fact that some societies, say Western Europe and the offshoots in, in North America, took off earlier than otherwise is associated with deeper factors, cultural elements, institutional elements, geographical elements, and elements that are associated with human diversity that prepared some societies for this takeoff and delayed the transition of other societies into the modern growth regime. So uh, obviously this, this unified growth theory approach is really important for understanding our past. What, what does it tell us about how to manage the economy you know, in, in the face of, you know, development economics has not had a lot of success, as you've pointed out in your book. Indeed. So, so in fact, the point of unified growth theory is that if we would like to resolve global inequality, if you would like to mitigate the level of inequality that we see between nations today, then we need to design policies that will be based on the individual trajectory of each economy across the globe. Namely, we need to be familiar with the historical conditions that affected the growth trajectory of each society, because these historical conditions affected 
the prevalence of certain growth enhancing cultural traits in some regions of the world. It affected the prevalence of inclusive institutions in some regions of the world. It affected the level of diversity that is growth enhancing in some regions of the world. And consequently, in order to understand inequality across the globe today, and in order to design policies that would mitigate inequality across the globe, we must move back into uh, human history, understand the trajectory of each society, and design policies that are based on the individual history of each country, rather than one policy for all nations. So for a long period of time, if you think about the Washington consensus and policies that are associated with the Washington consensus, the perception was that in fact, less developed societies are less developed because of failure in their policy. And therefore there was a recommendation that basically suggested one policy, one set of policies for all nations at once. And part of the reason that these policies were not very effective is that they, is that they ignored the individual trajectory of each society. And the scarcity of certain elements that are important for economic development in some regions of the world and the abundance in other regions of the world. And that's the beauty and the virtue of unified growth theory, namely the ability to detect these this important factors that are behind inequality as we see it across the globe. So it teaches us, so unified growth theory teaches us that there is no universal policy approach to addressing global inequality. Indeed, indeed. Right, I wish we had more time because there's a, I could go on uh, nerding out on this forever, but uh, I think we'll just get to our final question. We ask all of our guests, uh, why do you do this work? It's a valid uh, question. And in, in my particular case, um, I'm an Israeli. I was uh, born and raised in Jerusalem. And naturally, my upbringing was such that um, it was uh, virtually inescapable realizing that our life today is predicated on certain forces that operated in the distant past. So conflict today, inequality today, political relationship today are predicated on elements that occurred very much in the distant past. And this somehow perhaps uh, channeled me towards the understanding first that initial conditions are very important for human behavior and for the behavior of societies. And then when I combine this with my own passion towards uh, the mathematics of, uh, of dynamical systems, this ultimately led me into the exploration of the evolution of societies over time and the, the realization that uh, much of the inequality that we see across the globe today can be traced to elements that existed in the distant past. And perhaps most importantly, the realization that by understanding our history, we can participate in the design of our future. Great. Well, well, thank you. Like I said, I really enjoyed your book and uh, I, uh, I, I thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs> 
Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.